everyone. And we'll let God sort that out. And I might suggest to you that we forget the gospel is what God has given to us to share with others so that they will know his great love for them. Not so that they'll be like us, not so that they'll agree with us, but so that they'll know God truly loves them. And they will find that deep and eternal relationship with him through Jesus. All right. In the message today, essentially three questions are being asked and answered. First, who are these three people who encountered the gospel? Second, what happened to them because of their encounter with the gospel? And third, how are we to understand and apply that for ourselves? So, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. I want to give you just a little bit of background. Uh, We went through Acts 15 last week. Do we have the map? If you look down in the lower right-hand corner, that's Jerusalem. And last week, Paul and Barnabas are in Jerusalem, and they're dealing with a major question of, do Gentiles have to take on the Jewish law and the Jewish customs, or is their faith in Jesus enough? And through Scripture and through community and through the Holy Spirit, the church decides that Gentiles do not have to become Jews to be saved. Faith in Jesus alone is sufficient for salvation. And so the word goes out and they send out um, runners to go to the churches throughout the Roman Empire to tell them this because more and more Gentiles are coming to faith. Paul and Barnabas then go up to Antioch where their original first mission had started. And they stay there and they teach for a while. And we discover that a dispute arises with them over John Mark, who is Barnabas's brother. Well, they decide to split, and Barnabas takes John Mark to go on his journey, and Paul takes Silas and begins his second missionary journey. Now, he heads over to Lystra and Derby, which is directly west of Antioch, and that's where they ended, he and Barnabas ended, their first missionary journey. And he wants to know how the people are doing. He wants to make sure the churches are established. The plan, though, for Paul and Barnabas, their desire is that they would go to Asia. You could see that underlined there. It's the province of Asia. And that's where they want to go. But the Holy Spirit puts up obstacles. We don't know how many obstacles, but they decipher that the Holy Spirit is telling them not to go there. And that, in fact, Paul then has a vision, sees a man from Macedonia begging him to come, and they conclude together that the Holy Spirit is calling them to Macedonia, and they head further west and north to Philippi, a major uh, city, Roman colony, and that's where they start this second missionary journey uh, of what they're doing. Now, I would love to read through this portion of the text and go through it in you because it gives such a great detail of how we can discern the Holy Spirit, okay? But there's only so much time we're going to deal with the three encounters, but here's what I'm going to tell you. If you want to know how to discern the Holy Spirit in your life and who doesn't, 
on Thursday in the highlights that you get in your email, you just click on the section that says, find out about discerning the Holy Spirit in your life. All right? And you'll see what this text has to say about it in a very practical means for yourself to walk closer with God. The first encounter that the gospel has in Philippi with a person happens in verses 11 through 15. So let's read that. So setting sail from Traus, we, that's Paul and Silas and Timothy, who's with them now, made a direct voyage to Samothrace and following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Lydia is the first person in Philippi to encounter the gospel in a very real, deep and lasting way. We are, what, what do we know about her? Well, we're told that Paul and Silas go to this place outside the city where there's a river, where there's a gathering of women who are praying. The reason that the women are gathering there to pray is because there's no synagogue in Philippi. The reason for that is there is no minion. And minion was Jewish law that said there had to be at least 10 Jewish males above the age of 13 before a synagogue could be formed. So you know that the Jewish population is extremely small in Philippi. So Paul goes there and the women are meeting, which is a standard practice for them, and praying uh, on the Sabbath together. We are told that Lydia is a businesswoman from Thyatira. Thyatira was known for a very precious purple dye. And she is a seller of goods, of these purple goods that have been dyed by this precious, precious purple color. Now, what's unusual about that is that very few businesswomen existed in the ancient world. It's commonplace today. It wasn't back then. So we find that she is a woman woman of means. She has a household. And we learn that when she's baptized. And often the term household is code for she had a family and servants. So there were more who were dependent upon her. Scholars suggest that she's a single woman, most likely a widow. If she wasn't, we probably would have heard about her husband. And it was so unusual for something like that to take place. And there was all kinds of speculation how she became a businesswoman. But we have absolutely no evidence of that in this. She would have been a Gentile. And Lydia was an enlightened woman. What do I mean by that? She was a woman who knew of God. She was one of the God-fearers, the Gentiles, who, you know, uh, 
followed the, the God of Israel and did everything that a Jew would do, but did not become a Jew. She did not um, follow uh, or go through all of the Jewish customs. It's interesting that Luke doesn't call her a God-fearer. He calls her a God-worshipper, which probably identifies her deep devotion to God. So she knows of God. She is believing and behaving like a Jew without becoming one. And we know that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to the gospel. Now, some of you might be prone to think, oh, that happened right then. The Lord opened her heart and she was saved right at that moment. We don't know that. What we do know is the Lord opened her heart to Paul. We do know that whatever the exchange, whether it was at at that meeting or other exchanges, that she comes to saving faith and her life is forever changed. Now, how was she changed? Well, First of all, instead of knowing of God, she now knows God. Jesus is God incarnate. And she now knows who God is. She now knows him personally. She is now a child of God. She is baptized, her and her entire household. And she is included among the family of faith. She is saved from her sin. She has established an eternal relationship with God through Jesus. And, of course, this will be true as well because of her baptism of the third encounter uh, with the gospel. That person was also baptized. Now, this morning, near the conclusion of our service, there's going to be two baptisms. And here's the question that I'll ask you to let roll around in the back of your mind. Why is baptism important? Was important enough for Lydia to be baptized? It's going to be important enough for the third encounter to be baptized. Why, if it doesn't save us? Why, if it's belief in Jesus that saves us, is baptism so important that she's baptized? You're going to hear more about that later. This leads us to the second encounter with the gospel in Philippi. And that happens in verses 16 through 24. Let's read that together as well. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept their practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet with stocks. 
It is about midnight when Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God that an earthquake occurs. Now, the second encounter with the gospel is a slave girl. She is enslaved outwardly, but she is also enslaved inwardly. She is bound, she is in bondage in both ways. The inward bondage is by an evil spirit. Now you say, how do I know it's an evil spirit? Because the spirit isn't supposed to be possessing us. That's not its place. And it's not to be controlling us. The image of God was given to us. And it is free. That's how I know it's an evil spirit. Now, this spirit gave her the ability to tell the future. Today, we would just simply call her in our society a psychic reader. The problem with psychic readers and the reason scripture tells us that we shouldn't be going to psychic readers is that instead of trusting God and walking into the future with faith, people begin to trust a spirit that gives them information. The truth is, some of that information may or may not be real. It's often a mixture of light and darkness, but here's the deal. It grabs hold of people and causes them to follow it instead of following God. We see in scripture, King Saul and King Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, both of them consult with mediums and psychics and both broke faith with God. And both are condemned for it. The slave girl was a Gentile. How do I know she wasn't a Jew? Scholars say that slavery by Jews and of Jews was very rare at that time. So it was likely that she wasn't. We know that she's the meal ticket for the two men who own her. We know that she is drawn to Paul and Silas. And, and she's like an ancient stalker following them around and declaring that they are providing the way of salvation. It is then that this slave girl encounters the gospel and she is forever changed. We are told that Paul is greatly annoyed by her. The word means that he's troubled. The question is, is this spirit harassing Paul? Trying to be an obstacle in the way of the gospel? Or is there something inside of this slave girl that is crying out for help? If you know anything about spiritual oppression, possession, and those kinds of things, you know that the person who is obsessed or oppressed isn't free. And so if she wanted to say, you know, Paul, please save me, she couldn't. Even if she wanted to, the Spirit wouldn't let that happen. But I wonder if her following them around and being drawn to them was at some level a cry for help. We'll never know. But 
I just want to suggest to you that people who are oppressed do cry out for help in ways that we don't understand. And you might say, ah, obsession, possession. We don't see that in today's world. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. We call them addiction. We speak about some of these things as multiple personalities and other kinds of things. But the Bible is talking about at a spiritual level, there are entities that are messing with people. And not all of those entities get access to people because they are terribly bad. Often they come through abuse and other kinds of things that happen to the, to the person. So I, I just want to be clear about that. Well, Paul commands that spirit in the name of Jesus to come out of that woman. And the spirit does. And the woman is changed. She is delivered in the name of Jesus. She is freed from the spiritual oppression. She has a new life because she is able now to choose for herself. She is no longer in inward bondage. She can no longer tell the future. She has lost that ability. She is no longer a meal ticket for her two masters. She makes them pretty angry. Now the scripture doesn't tell us anything else about her at all. But I just want to take a moment to speculate. I wonder if she didn't respond like Mary Magdalene who was delivered of seven spirits, who upon being delivered of those spirits and recognize the freedom that Jesus had provided for her and the love was deeply, deeply devoted and committed to him. I wonder if that wasn't true for her as well. Again, we'll never know. What we do know is that this act triggers resistance in the city. Transformation of one person so shakes up the city that there is chaos. They grab hold of Paul and Silas. They beat them with rods and they throw them in jail. In our mission statement, that third movement of our mission statement, right? And we're sending out empowered disciples to transform the world. We use that word transform the world because we recognize that when the gospel is shared it has a transforming effect even upon society now consider uh, Wilbur Wilberforce who upon becoming a Christian leads the movement in Britain in the 19th century to eliminate slavery altogether He was a force for transforming society. Well, because this slave girl was delivered, Paul and Silas and the gospel had messed with their economic prosperity. You touch people where they live and they react. And the gospel oftentimes affects society in such ways. Well, this leads us to the third encounter at Philippi with the gospel. This happens in verses um, 16 through 
34. And we, we heard some of that while we were worshiping in song, and it was read for us. So we know the story of how this, um, while the, the, uh, Paul and Silas are in jail, it's about midnight, and they're responding to being beaten and arrested and thrown into jail, not by commiserating how miserable things are, how much their body hurts, but they are praising God and singing worship songs because the gospel is going forth. And just as I explained a couple weeks ago of the pattern of the gospel, wherever it's preached, there's going to be resistance. And they celebrate that resistance because they know that it is a reaction to the power of God at work. And it is while they are praising God that an earthquake occurs. An earthquake of such a magnitude that the cell doors are open, the chains are broken. And the jailer wonders if his prisoners are even present. Remember now, this is an area of Bulgaria, Greece, Asia Minor, they have lots of earthquakes there and they can be pretty serious. So this is what occurred. And the jailer was prepared to commit suicide. Now, now it doesn't tell us why, but here's what scholars tell us. If you were a jailer and you lost your prisoner, you served that prisoner's sentence. Now, you know why? The reason why is because Jailers could take bribes and let people go and say they escaped or whatever. If a jailer is responsible to make sure they're there, and he doesn't want to lose his livelihood, and he doesn't want to be in prison, he's going to make sure those prisoners stay there. So, the jailer is ready to commit suicide, and Paul yells out to him, Stop! We're all here. And the jailer has them get lights and they come in and he sees that everyone is there. Now the jailer recognizes this is not natural. This is supernatural. And he falls down before Paul and Silas and he says, what must I do to be saved? Now the word he uses for saved that Dr. Luke records there is not the typical word that is used for eternal salvation. It is a word that actually means to be safe, to be secure in more of a material sense. He is actually saying, what must I do to keep myself safe, to keep my job, to keep being able to provide for my family? And just as God always does, he answers with something far more than what we've asked for. And Paul and Silas tell him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Now I want to stop here for one minute just to focus on that believe in the Lord Jesus. Sometimes as we're reading about this Christian faith and what is real faith and what isn't real faith and who's playing at their faith and who's not playing but living it out, We have these people who come up with these formulas and who say, okay, first thing you have to do is you have to repent. 
Then after you've repented, you have to believe. And then after you've believed, you've got to pray a prayer. And these are the words you have to say. And if you don't do it exactly like that, you're not saved. But scripture shows us that when somebody comes to believe in Jesus, they are forever changed. Repentance may follow belief. It may not be the starting place. It wasn't where I started. I was in college. I knew I wasn't living my life the way I should. But when I was invited to believe that Jesus is Lord, my heart just responded. There would be time for repentance, and it was real and genuine, and in fact, uh, didn't get to be as real and genuine as it should have. But within about two years, I got pretty serious about it all. So I just want to say that just as Jesus saved you know, the, the criminal on the cross, who didn't sit down and say, I'm a terrible criminal, let me, you know, bless me for I have sinned and go through the whole rigmarole and follow the formula. Jesus is able to save if we believe. And our salvation is eternal. Doesn't mean the evil one doesn't come and try to mess with it, he does. But that's where other believers and being in relation to other believers, and you're going to hear perhaps baptism, those things matter to us. All right. What do we know about the Philippian jailer? Well, first of all, he's a civil servant. This is a steady job, and he would be a middle-class citizen. Scholars tell us that he was likely a former Roman soldier. As such, he would have been a gruff and tough man, using intimidation and fear upon the prisoners. There probably wasn't much of a tender bone in his body or compassionate. They were hard people. But the earthquake made him fearful. And here's the truth about people that we think are really tough. A lot of times, all of that stuff is just hiding the fact that they're just as afraid as everybody else, maybe more so. Believe me about that. My dad was tough. Hard to get underneath his shell. And by the time I was a young man, I wanted to be like him. I was tough. Hard to get underneath the shell. And do you know what all that was? I've been hurt by people. I didn't want to be hurt by them anymore. And I learned to be this tough, gruff person to keep everybody at distance. And so did my dad. Because inside, there's a part of us that just wants to be loved and wants to be connected to God. And that's natural for us. And these other things just covered up. So an earthquake makes him fearful and brings that up. He is materially focused. He wants to be safe. He is unaware and unconcerned about spiritual things. He knows that something spiritual, something supernatural has gone on, but he's not asking for anything supernatural. He's just asking to be safe and secure. 
when he encounters the gospel, like Lydia, he and his household are baptized. He is forever changed. How is he changed? Well, first of all, he doesn't commit suicide. That's a good thing. It's never an answer, ever. God has given us the gift of life. Only God has the right to take our life. This jailer who desired safety now knows something even greater. He knows eternal salvation. He receives eternal life. And I think as a soldier, he probably cherishes the fact that he is genuinely forgiven. You know, I I was surprised back in college. My roommate, good friend, who was a Vietnam veteran, Silver Star winner, Bronze Star winner. He came back from Vietnam. They called him a baby killer. He threw his medals in the bay in San Francisco. And he was just broken. And he was a mess. And it bothered me because he was a good man. And I remember going to Canada with my dad. And I'm 20, 21 years old. And I I asked my dad about my friend because I didn't know how to help him. And my dad started to talk about World War II. My dad never talked about World War II. He never talked about the things he went through. But you know, there were things that bothered him. And he said, Craig, we came back and we were a mess also. We just never talked about it. I think, as a former soldier, this forgiveness was so important to him. And I think it matters to us because some of us feel like we could never be forgiven for some of the things we've done, but we can. God's forgiveness is real and it will change us. The jailer is no longer spiritually unaware or unconcerned. He is filled now with tenderness and compassion, cleans up Paul and Silas. He's baptized, and believe it or not, this tough, gruff, mean jailer is filled with joy. I would imagine that shook his family up a little bit. Like Lydia, he has baptized him and his household. They become children of God, saved from their sins, and established an eternal relationship with Jesus. So we've seen who these people are. We've seen what's happened to them. What does that mean to us? How can we apply and understand that in our own life? Well, I'm sure the Holy Spirit is speaking into your hearts, speaking to you ways for you to understand and apply it. But... I'm going to share with you just some of my thoughts. There are three encounters with the gospel. There is an enlightened person. There is an enslaved, oppressed person. And there is a spiritually unaware person. And yet the gospel brings life to them. They are vastly different. Living vastly different lives. And yet the gospel which is accompanied by the power of God, has the power to free them, to give them life. 
I think the first thing that ought to matter to us is the testimony to the gospel being accompanied by the power of God to give life. I think that's something we should never, ever lose track of. Because we have an opportunity to give something to another person that is the greatest thing we can give to them. I think the second thing is that all people matter to God and they ought to matter to us if they matter to God. He wants them to matter to us as well. You know, before I became a believer in Jesus, I'm just going to be honest with you. I didn't much like people and I didn't much care for people and I was happy that the number of people I could call friends was maybe on one hand. And when I became a follower of Jesus, I became incredibly interested in people. I wanted to know about them and what made them tick. And I developed a heart for them and that was something God did. I didn't make that happen. That was that transformation. We ought to know that Everyone matters to God and they ought to matter to us. Here's another thing. We see Paul and Silas, they're not standing around saying, come and hear me preach the gospel. They're going out and seeking. They're going out and finding those divine appointments that God has made for them out there. And they're talking into those situations and people's everyday lives. And we ought to take that and look at ourselves and ask ourselves the questions, Are we engaged in that go and seek? Are we engaged in sharing the gospel? Are we engaged in finding those divine appointments that God has made for us? That we might be able to give life to others by simply sharing the gospel with them? And the last thing, as you have opportunity, share the gospel. Share the gospel. It's not based on you. It's based on God and what God does. I love what Paul says to Romans. I want to leave you with this thought. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Please join with me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of the gospel. Help us to not be ashamed, but to declare it freely to others that they may know the life that you intend for them, that they may be free. Those who are enlightened and know of you may know you. Those who are enslaved and in bondage some way may be set free. And those, Lord, who are unaware or unconcerned of spiritual things, that, Lord, their hearts and their minds might be open to you. That they might receive the gift of life through Jesus. We thank you. Pray this in your precious name. Amen. Let's stand and sing with us.
ascension, the Lord Jesus instituted water baptism when he commanded, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. That's Matthew 28. And so we practice baptism by immersion in water as a sort of a reenactment of our conversion to faith in Christ. It's a, sim- it's a symbolic act, and there are multiple layers to the symbolism. Actually, on, on one level, what's happening here is a symbol of the cleansing that took place when we placed our faith in Christ as he washed away our sin, and that's represented by the waters of that baptism. But on another level, the um, being dunked underneath the water and then raised up again is symbolic of our... Uh, being dead to our sin and then raised to new life with Christ. All of that is part of what God does when he regenerates our hearts. And so in all, what happens here is an outward display of an inward reality that has already taken place in the heart of a believer. We heard today the story of this Philippian jailer who, when he had heard the gospel, he believed and was baptized that night as a symbol of his newfound faith. And this morning... There are two young people in our congregation, Nicole and Luke Brown, who have put their faith in Christ and want to make their entrance into the family of God public by being baptized today. So we're going to get to hear each of their stories. We'll hear Nicole's in just a minute. Nicole, will you come down here with us now? Before Nicole shares her story, let's pray for Nicole and for Luke. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We are grateful that by his death and resurrection, he redeemed us from our sin. We know that it is by your grace alone that you have cleansed us and granted us eternal life in your family. And we rejoice that we've been baptized by your Holy Spirit into one body. And we thank you now for Nicole and for Luke Brown, who now desire to receive the sign and seal of water baptism in obedience to the command of your Son, our Savior. Strengthen Nicole's faith. Strengthen Luke's faith. Now, that they might continue to walk before you in holiness and righteousness all their days. Yes, we pray in the name of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Nicole, why don't you share your story with us? Okay. I I first met Jesus at church when I was really young because God had blessed me with parents that were God-honoring and kind. I learned from them about Jesus, and I learned more about him from church. 
I then started to learn more and more from church and mom and dad about the Bible. I learned about God's ways of shining through others to do good and how he made others believe. I learned about Jesus' miracles and amazing works. When I found out about the Moses and Noah story, I was surprised at how amazing God was and how he worked through others. When I heard about the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, I just thought it was so cool and I didn't really process that he did it for us. But when I just turned seven, I'd gotten in trouble for being dishonest. I don't remember exactly what I did, but I was sent up to my room so I could think about what I did. While I was thinking, I thought back to what my church leaders had told us to do. While I was think- doing that, I landed on what they said about Jesus dying for us. I realized that my mom and dad had also been teaching us about how Jesus had died for us. It then struck me of all the things that Jesus did for us and what he went through to forgive our sins. Then mom and dad went, walked into the room as if they knew what I had been thinking. They asked me if I had been thinking about my dishonesty and how I could fix it. I told them what I was thinking, and I also realized that I couldn't do anything on my own. I realized that God was forgiving and always forgave us for our sins. Then I figured out that it was impossible for me to even get close to making good decisions all the time without God. What he did for us was outstanding, and nothing could be better. The realization struck me, and I immediately understood why the church leaders had told us to accept Jesus into my heart. I told my parents, and they prayed with me. Then I prayed and accepted Jesus into my heart. After that, I felt more forgiven. I wanted to read the Bible more and spend more time with him. Accepting Jesus into my heart has really changed my life. Definitely lately, I have felt like God has been helping me think before I speak and also have been trying to put others before myself in everything I do. I think that accepting Jesus into my heart has really made me a better person. I am so excited to see what else he helps me with. I have been preparing my heart for baptism, and now I am ready. I have been looking forward to this, and I am so excited to be baptized. I am happy and overjoyed to have Jesus in my life and follow his order to be obedient and proclaim my faith publicly. It is an amazing feeling to know that the most powerful God has forgiven my sins and will always forgive them. I am thankful for the peace in knowing that and that he still has more in store for me. I love Jesus and I am glad to have him in my heart. I can't believe that I get to be forgiven by him. This opportunity is outstanding and I believe he is still working my life. Praise God. Praise God. Thank you for that powerful story, Nicole. It's been a joy getting to spend time with Nicole and Luke in uh, recent weeks as they've prepared for this day. What a great story of what God's done in your life. Um, Nicole and Luke and their family have chosen to have Jane Eklov, our kids' ministry director, uh, here in the water to participate in their baptisms. Um, so, Nicole, Jane is now going to ask you two questions, and we invite you to confess your faith publicly by answering, I do, if you affirm what she says. Nicole, do you believe that Jesus died for your sin, that he rose again to give you eternal life? I do. do you, is it your intention to affirm, can you affirm your intention to follow Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit? I do. All right. Well, Nicole Brown, on the basis of that profession of faith, we now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Sing another verse with us.
share his story now. I grew up with a mom and dad that talked about Jesus. My parents also take me to church and that made me learn more about Jesus. I was reading Jay's for Jesus a book about the meaning of the candy cane with mom and dad. And then I realized that Jesus really wants me in heaven with him. He wanted that so much that he died on the cross for all my sins. Also I realized that the red on the candy cane meant my sins on Jesus and Jesus' blood that he shed for me. And the white stripes meant that our sins are washed away by Jesus' death and, and the resurrection. I'm forgiven. I'm free. I'm going to heaven. Luke, thanks for sharing that story. Um, and now, Luke, Jane's going to ask you two questions now. And if you affirm what she's saying, if you agree, then if you just say, I do. Luke, do you believe that Jesus died for your sin, that he rose again, giving you eternal life? I do. Do you affirm your intention to live for Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit? I do. All right. Well, Luke Brown, on the basis of that profession of faith, we now baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.